If you would, grab a seat, please. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do a few just personal things. Uh, it, I have been out of town the past two weeks, and Brandon Reynolds, our preaching intern this summer, has filled in. And I'm just going to say, if you missed any of the previous two Sundays, then I'm going to assign required viewing that you need to go and watch the message that he's brought in this desperate series. Uh, You will be blessed, you will be encouraged, you'll be challenged by them. Uh, Brandon is bringing some incredible message. I actually had somebody ask me this week, they said, hey, does it bother you that Brandon's doing such a good job? I said, no, not at all. And I said, it makes me look like a smart man for hiring him. God's, God is blessing his word here through this series, and so I just really want you to encourage you. Uh, I want to encourage you, to, if you get a chance, and there's a message, I've already heard some of you share some of the messages that you've shared with others. Uh, you've gone on to our YouTube channel and you've grabbed the link and you've pushed that on to somebody else or you've gone on to our podcast and you've grabbed that. I just want you to know those are available and those are powerful ways uh, to share that and let God's word keep blessing others as it's blessed you. Uh, second personal note I want to do is um, God continues to bring us people, but every now and then he calls some away and Stephen and Caitlin Grant uh, are sitting right out here, and they are pursuing a new job opportunity that I think will put you closer to family. Is that that correct? And so uh, we love them, and they've been an active part of Western Hills for many, many years. They'll be celebrated or prayed over today in a, with the second hour with the Young Families class, but uh, we're praying for you, and, and Godspeed as, as he calls you into the next chapter. Last thing I want to do, I want to put my two cents as uh, preacher, minister, onto what Rachel uh, shared with you earlier. Uh, I apologize that she doesn't come with personality or energy, but we're working, we're working on that. But our children's ministry is growing. God is blessing it, and we are doing some exciting things are going on there. Um, so... I want you to be excited about and lean into this VBS uh, that she is dreaming and praying about. Um, Last week on Father's Day, uh, Rachel shared this story. She gave me permission to share it with you. Uh, After in the sermon and in the message and during the second hour, obviously on that day we talked about God loves you and God's our Father. And we appreciated fathers and all that they all they do when Rachel went into crew and into second hour. One of the young boys that were that was there, whose father apparently was not active in his life, said, I don't have a dad. Does that apply to me? We have a children's ministry because we want every child to know there is a father in heaven that loves them beyond their wildest imagination that's why we will spend the money that's why we will recruit the volunteers that's why we will put things on the calendar and we will be passionate about this and so i'm going to use this moment to put one little emphasis there that if you're a guy and 
you can play a role in children's lives. You may or may not have your own biological children. That's fine. But you can help be an image of God our Father to so many. So if, if you thought VBS isn't for you, um, and you've kind of thought that's for somebody else, there's a role that you can play. And I'm going to encourage you to use the QR code, talk to Rachel, and be a part, uh, be a part of that and see what God can do through that, through that opportunity. Well, last week it was my privilege to be on a mission trip with Dry Bones. Uh, Eric and I got to, got to participate along with um, our two recent graduates as they're about to head off to college, and what a blessing that was. And I can also tell you that the state of our youth ministry is really going strong, and to be with these young students as they are serving Jesus in so many ways. It wasn't bad either that it ranged from 40 degrees to 80 degrees as the highest. I don't regret that, um, but we're back, and now they're about to head off to, ch- off to church camp, to Camp Koinonia, and you um, be praying for them as they do that. I want to dive into our series, Desperate for a Do-Over. Desperate's our series, and today is Desperate for a Do-Over. As I thought about this... There may this may be a generational thing, and so if it is, you can you can confess. I'm of a generation where it was normal to play in the street. Anybody else grow up with this, where your yard wasn't quite big enough, and the other kids' neighborhood you get together and you would play in the street. Now, it there's lots of things that I realize that as a child I did, and apparently mom and dad must have not loved me as much as I love my kids, because I don't remember ever encouraging this behavior in my parenting. But when you played in the street, it was always interesting, because there was a whole other set of rules that whatever game you were playing, you know, whether it be some form of football or some form of baseball or something with the Frisbee, that there was always a moment when the game got interrupted, Right? Somebody would yell, car, everything stops, you move off to the side. If a car was involved in some way, you got a do-over, right? Whatever the play was interrupted. And the way we played on our street, also, if whatever object, ball, football, frisbee, baseball, if it hit a car, you got a do-over. If for some reason it ended up in the tree... You got a do-over. If you threw it over the house, you got a do-over. And bragging rights. And I thought about that, and there was just something so forgiving, something so easy when you get the do-over. And there's something in me and perhaps something in you that desires to go back to a day when a do-over was as simple as calling do-over, right? Because as life progresses on, for many of us, and perhaps I'm going to just suggest all of us, and if maybe this doesn't, you don't think this applies to you yet, that means you're not quite that far along in life yet. Because... We all desire this do-over. There is a decision. There was an action. There was a moment. There was a season of life, maybe. 
where you wish, I wish I could have that to do over again. And instead of fond memories about that and lots of nice pictures about that and stories that you want to say out loud about that, you're filled with regret and remorse and maybe even shame. And it's no longer a kid's game anymore, is it? You wish there was some way you could go back to before that because you know now if you could have a shot at doing that over again, you know guaranteed you would make a different set of decisions, you would take a different course of action, you would use words differently, whatever it is, if you could undo that and get a do-over, you would. You're desperate for a do-over. So what I want to do today is I actually want to preach somebody else's sermon. So this is not my sermon. This is somebody else's sermon. But it highlights this need for a do-over. This message comes from Exodus chapter 3, and if you want to turn there, I'm going to encourage you to follow along. What I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to summarize the story that you find in Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to ask that you would, would, if you want to kind of follow along some parts of this story, I'm going to back up a little bit and make a run at this so that you kind of have an understanding where we are. But Exodus chapter 3 is kind of the culmination of a very critical story that takes place in our Bible. And I believe, and we believe here, that this is actual history. That these words actually happened. And the backstory is that there was at one time a man named Joseph, and maybe you know him because he's famous for having the coat of many colors. And Joseph ends up being sold into slavery and ends up in the land, the nation of Egypt. And through a series of God's work, Joseph rises through the ranks and it goes from being a slave to being second in command of the entire country. And when he does, he organizes a way for them to survive a famine. And the entire country and that part of the world survives a famine because of what God did through Joseph. And so Joseph is a Hebrew. He's a, a, the people of God. And so he gets to send for his entire family. His large family comes and joins them and lives a comfortable life in Egypt. But what happens is their descendants start growing. This family just gets larger and larger and larger and larger. And as you go through generations, suddenly there are so many that the Pharaoh, the king, becomes concerned. Because this is now a population that's outpacing his population, and that causes concern and threats. And so what Pharaoh does is he begins to apply and brings them into slavery and uses them to build their empire with. Well, they continue to thrive, actually. Now, not, not necessarily emotionally, and they enjoy this, but as a population, they continue to expand. And so the Pharaoh becomes even more concerned about their growing power, and he gets the idea, if just one of these starts realizing that they outnumber us, the rebellion could take place. And so Pharaoh sends out a command. Because when you're king, 
when you're Pharaoh, you can do this. He sends out a command that simply says, whenever there's a birth of a Hebrew, the midwife that's present at the birth, if it's a, if it's a daughter, let it live. If it's a son, kill it. That's the order from Pharaoh. Well, God's hand is in this, and there's two midwives that are instructed to carry this out, and they end up not following the Pharaoh's instructions, and there is a child born named Moses. But Moses' mom is concerned because obviously if Pharaoh is looking to hunt down all the male children, then her son is still at risk. He may have survived the birth process, but there's still a risk out there. So what she does is when he's still a young baby, she takes him and she's going to hide him. And so she takes a basket and she makes it waterproof, puts him in it and floats him and hides him among reeds in the Nile. Now, I don't know if it was part of her plan, but she hid him close enough to where Pharaoh's daughter is out with her court taking a bath, and she finds this basket containing a baby floating in the Nile River. And when she does, she takes him into her own home and begins to raise Moses as a child in the house of Pharaoh. See how God's at work here. So Moses grows up. Now he's aware that he's a Hebrew. I don't know because they told him or different skin color or whatever, but he's aware that he's a Hebrew, but he's enjoying all the benefits, all the privileges, all the comforts, all the luxuries, all the best education from being in Pharaoh's house. And he goes through this until he's about the age of 40. And somewhere in there, it begins to wear on him, and there's a burden on him that his people, that his, his ethnic group, is the slaves of Egypt. And one day, he's out and he sees a taskmaster, an Egyptian taskmaster, punishing and whipping a Hebrew slave. And... Whatever it is in that moment that he's been wrestling with bubbles to the top. And he has a sense of, of righteous judgment right then. And so he goes into action on his own and ends up striking down and killing this Egyptian taskmaster. And then he kind of panics. Because he's just committed murder. And even if you're the... the adopted son of Pharaoh, the Hebrew just killed an Egyptian. So he hides the body. And he thinks all is well. Until the next day, when he sees two Hebrews fighting now. Two Hebrew slaves are fighting, and he jumps in because he wants some peace and some reconciliation. He tries to break them up and ask them, why are they fighting? And they turn on him. If you've ever done anything or familiar with law enforcement, oftentimes law enforcement gets called out to a domestic dispute. And one of the dangers of walking into a domestic dispute is that 
the two parties that were fighting just moments before turn on the third party. That's what happens with Moses. He's trying to be the good guy. He's trying to be the leader here. Maybe in his mind he thinks that this is an opportunity for him to start rising up and being a leader for his people. And they turn on him and one of them looks at him and says, Are you going... He made you judge over us. Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And he realized he was seen. And there are now witnesses. So Moses panics. Instead of leading a rebellion, he just goes on the run. Instead of organizing the uprising, he heads out into the wilderness. And he goes from being a son in the house of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful nations on earth at the time, to being a shepherd amongst sheep. He goes from the lap of luxury to moving around, sleeping on the ground, working with sheep. He goes from the courts praising his name to a bunch of animals going, bah. <laughs> it's a rough life. And he gets 40 years. 40 years of that. Now just put yourself into that for a moment. He had it all. Power, influence, comfort, luxury, and even saw a purpose for his life that he was going to somehow help the Hebrews. And he has 40 years of regret and shame realizing how did I end up out here? Where did it go wrong? If I could just go back and have a do-over and change those decisions, I may have still been somebody. You ever had those thoughts? You ever, you ever had those moments in your own head where you're working through something and you just feel, how could I have been that foolish? How could I have been that stupid? have decided that and you just beat yourself up over and over and over this is what Moses he didn't have any type of social media to look at he couldn't cruise through YouTube videos he couldn't even read a book it was just him and his thoughts for 40 years wrestling with that and then one day in the area that he'd been already and he was familiar with he looks up and he sees an unusual sign. He sees a bush that's on fire. That in itself is not that unusual. But as he's sitting back watching it, and he'd seen brush fires before, as he's watching it, he notices something unique. It just keeps burning. And it keeps burning. And it keeps burning. And it doesn't seem to burn up. So he begins to climb his way up to this site to investigate and when he gets up there it goes from interesting to just weird because now he hears a voice and a voice is coming out of this bush and it tells him that this is the voice of God and what you need to do Moses you need to take off your sandals because you're now standing on holy ground 
And holy simply means set apart for a purpose. It's, it's not, we, we think it means a simple higher moral value, and there's some of that in there. But, but anytime you see it in Scripture, it, its first definition is always that it's set apart for a purpose. And Moses is being invited to step onto holy ground because God's about to give him a set-apart purpose. He's about to get a do-over. And he has spent his life waiting for this. Well, I told you this wasn't my sermon. So I'll go ahead and give you my source now. This is the sermon that a man named Stephen preached in the book of Acts. Stephen was one of the first followers of Jesus. And his belief and his faith bring him into conflict with the powers of the church at the time, with the religious leaders of his day, the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he's preaching this message of Jesus, and they actually grab him one day and they put him on trial. And when he goes on trial, they ask him, what is it, this message that you're preaching? And he starts challenging them back. And what he does is he goes all the way back to the beginning of the story and says, this is how God is at work. This is how God is at work. This is how God is at work. And he preaches it all the way up. And he gets to the part where he starts telling the story of Moses. And I want you to look there. Chapter 7 of Acts. And he tells the story of Moses that was called to lead the people out of slavery. So Moses' charge is to go back to Egypt. He tried to do it on his own the very first time. But now he's going back, not by his own power, but by the power of God. And Moses is unsure about this, by the way. And so he actually puts up a fight against God. And you can read about that in Exodus 3 and on into 4. But God sends him back, and Moses becomes the one that leads the people. Now he's ready to lead the people out, not by his power, but by God's, and bring freedom and deliverance to the people of God. And so this is the part of that sermon where this one that had been waiting and waiting and waiting for his do-over we find in Acts chapter 7, I'm going to just jump into the part of 35. Verse 35 says this. This is Stephen giving his speech. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. Talking about the Ten Commandments. He received the instructions from God. Notice how he keeps saying, this is the Moses that did that. This is the Moses. What Stephen is emphasizing is the fact that this one that had lost all hope, this one that thought he had messed up too far, this is the one that God chose to use. 
And Stephen's the one that tells us in this sermon, he tells us that for the first 40 years, Moses thought he was somebody. Then Moses experienced 40 years of believing he was a nobody. And then for the last 40 years of his life, Moses got to learn what God can do with a nobody. So there's a couple of takeaways that I want to give from, you, from this story that I think if you'll, we'll embrace it, this is our way for a do-over. The first of all, understand you are never too old to experience a do-over. Forty years, he thought he was somebody. Forty years, he thought he was a nobody. How old does that make Moses at the burning bush? Eighty years old. And he's getting his do-over moment. You are never too old. A do-over in God's hand is not simply something like, if I could go back and be a teenager again, if I could be in my 20s again, if I could be back in my first marriage again, if I could just get younger somehow, then I get my do-over. If there is something in your life that you've been waiting for that do-over, you are not too old for that moment. That's the God that we served. And he comes to Moses at the age of 80 and says, Now is the time. That ties into this very next one. If you're still breathing, God still has a purpose for you. Some of you went, Whew. Okay, but seriously, how often do we think that wouldn't it be neat if God had a purpose for me because I can see it so clearly in everybody else's life, but for some reason, He doesn't have a purpose for me. There's not a mission that I can get caught up in. There's not a way that He can use me. I, I believe that this truth goes all through Scripture, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. There is nobody that I can find in Scripture that God does not have a purpose for. That God's still not trying to work in their life somehow. Now they may be at odds with God. And they may be pushing back. But God can still use you. So if you are still breathing. God has a purpose for you. And my encouragement to you is your minister. It's to be open to it. Be, be curious about what that could be. Don't be closed off and think somehow it's all passed me by. Or somehow I'm disqualified because of my past. See, that's what Moses thought. Moses thought he was disqualified because of his past. And so he lived 40 years in what we would call, and the Bible would call, the wilderness time. Just wrestling with this reality, thinking, it's all past, it's all past, it's all past. Basically, I'm going to run out the clock now. And this is all my story is going to be. And my legacy is going to be the one who killed somebody and fled. That's my legacy. No, no, no. God still had a purpose and a plan. And He came and He brought... Moses, and he said, I'm going to use you, not by your power, not because you're so supremely qualified, not because you're, you're so perfect, 
because that's my plan. He brings his due over to him. And he brings it to him in a moment of this struggle, and you just need to understand this mindset of being in this wilderness, and some of you know what that's like. Because you would say right now, if we could all get real honest with each other, you would say that you're in a wilderness time. And it just doesn't seem life is working out. You're, you're, you're at, a, at a chapter, you're in a season, you're in a month, whatever it is. Maybe it's been a long season. Moses had 40 years. Where you just feel like it's just wilderness. And, and it doesn't seem like anything's going my way in this. And this is a hard and difficult time. And I'm not trying to minimize that at all because... It was hard and difficult for Moses as well. Remember, he went from the luxury of the palace to a mat sleeping on the ground, protecting sheep. In a foreign country that was not his country. So what I want to, the other thing that I believe that Stephen would have us take away from this message and that I want you to take away from this message is this. The wilderness is how God prepares you for a do-over. Now, Moses couldn't see it at the time. But can you imagine a better schooling to prepare him to lead the people of God out of Egypt across the wilderness into the promised land than being a shepherd. Moses learned to shepherd people by being an actual shepherd. So Moses didn't know it, but for 40 years, he's in God's boot camp. He's in God's basic training. And most of us would probably consider it a graduate level course when we have to suffer like that. But God was preparing him. What's God preparing for you? What's God preparing you for right now? We're desperate for the do-over. Well, Stephen preaches this sermon. And I want to preach like the guys in the Bible. I just don't want the same response. Because when Stephen gets done, these powerful men, they get what the message is. And they realize that Stephen's been pointing a finger in their face. And ultimately saying, you don't trust what God's doing here. You're too protective of your power. And so it's not that they don't get the message. They get it. They get it all too clearly and they can't stand it. And so here's how they respond to this. Back to chapter 7 of Acts. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. Well, that's a fun Sunday, isn't it? Now, I realize that I've preached some stinker sermons, but I don't ever remember this happening. These men are covered, they're so infuriated, they're covering their ears and they're shouting and they rush at him 
dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. This is the very brutal practice of putting someone, the condemned, in the middle and with large rocks, they began to throw them at his head and torso. This is a brutal way to die because this does not come quickly. Meanwhile, the witnesses, all of those participating in this, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This line is in there for a divine reason. This young man, Saul, who basically holds the cloaks of everybody else, because when you're throwing a rock, you want, don't want to be encumbered by your robe. And so they hand him all to him, and he is kind of the golden boy. He's the up-and-coming guy. And so he's there witnessing it, and his passions, his indignation, his self-righteousness gets inflamed, and he sees this as a moment. He knows his life purpose is to now attack and prosecute and persecute anybody that holds up the name of Jesus. And he gets fired up. And he goes on this mission. He rises far enough in the ranks from this moment going forward where he can actually go to these same men and they give him papers of authority that say, you can lock up, you can torture, you can execute people that are claiming the name of Jesus, just like we did to Stephen. And Paul is good at it. Until one day on a road, he's headed to a city called Damascus. And Saul has an encounter with Jesus. It's kind of a do-over now. Because he realizes that the very one that he's persecuting is the one sent by God. And his whole world goes upside down. Changes his name, Saul, to Paul. And it's real easy for us to think that that happens fast. Because it just seems like a few verses in the scriptures. But parts of Acts will tell us that he went for 14 years to his own wilderness and began to study, and reflect, and learn, and grow. And he had to wrestle with this fact of, what have I done, and what am I now being called to do? That in that time, a minister of God named Barnabas goes and finds him, and says, now's the time. God has a mission for you. And Paul the one that had persecuted the church, begins to go around, plant churches everywhere he goes. And Paul's the one that after he planted a church in a city called Corinth, he writes back to that church later, and he gives us the theme verse of this entire series. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, it says this right here. It says, But he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, 
in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Moses tried to do it under his own power, and he realized it was worthless and useless without God. Paul, as Saul, tried to do it under his own power, and he realized that he was fighting God. And so he comes to this realization, and he wrestled with it, wrestled with it, and oftentimes he would write these letters, and he would say, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the one to to be scorned above all else. You think you've got sin? Look at me. I've got sin. I persecuted the church actively. And yet, I now know that it's in my weakness that God's grace and His power is shown. And what Paul would spend the rest of his life on a mission and purpose is saying, by Jesus you get a do-over. There's no other way. God's grace comes in, and even though you find it hard to even face your own sin, your own regrets, and your own shame, God can come in and redeem that. And in your very weakness, in your very sin, in your very struggle, in your very shame, run through the list, God can show up. And in fact, it's in the moments where we are at our worst that God's power can begin a work on us that's new. Because the same Paul that realized that at one point in his life he was fighting God and then gave the rest of his life to God, realized the power of what Jesus can do in a life and spent the rest of his life going around, even in the face of hardships and difficulties and challenges and opposition, lifting the name of Jesus because he realized that even though he was at his worst, Jesus was still laying claim to his life. And so he would write in the book of Romans this, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Paul is a living testimony to not the idea that you get your life cleaned up and then let's see what God can do with you. But what God can do when He comes into you when you're dead in your sin and begins His work. And so what Moses would have us know What Stephen would want us to know and what Paul would want us to know is this. God's best stories begin in our worst moments. You can have a do-over. That's the gospel message. If you've been desperate for one, I'd encourage you to embrace the fact that Jesus has an invitation for you that says your life can be a do-over. It doesn't take you back to your youth somehow and let you relive all that. What it does, it makes you a new 
creation for the glory of God. It changes your dead life into a new life. And you won't believe what God can do with new creations. Let me pray for you, please. Father, as I preach this, I'm well aware of the things that bring me shame. And the decisions in my life that I regret, the ones I wish I could just go back and press delete on. But Father, that's me still wanting to be under my power. So Father, I pray that the grace of Jesus the one that encounters me while I'm still a sinner and encounters anybody hearing this message in the midst of their sin, that we would cling to this truth and the grace of Jesus would be at work recreating us, renewing us every single day. Father, for anyone of any age that's desperate for a do-over, would you begin a work in them today. Would you give them eyes to see how your presence has been there all along? Would you give them an understanding that perhaps you've been preparing them for something beyond their wildest imagination? And that you will redeem whatever they're walking through right now for your glory, for your name, for your purpose, for your mission. Father, may we be a church that does nothing but tell our do-over stories because they all bring you glory and honor. Father, I ask all this in the name of the one that went to the cross in my place so that I didn't have to. The one that walked out of the tomb Declaring that even death doesn't take away this hope that we have. Well, it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.